a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 97 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes and right on your own Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms. Also on Stitcher. We're everywhere. But enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse that we should have, Mark Herleman. And with me, like a Trandoshan with a life debt, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hello, hello all. Back again for the second part of a four-part arc this time. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we continue to look at John Jackson Miller's Knights of the Old Republic Volume 3, Days of Fear, Knights of Anger. This time, we're covering issues 16 through 18 of Dark Horse Comics' hit series. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you a quick spoiler-free rundown of the other half. So just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Yeah, this is an odd one, to be honest with you. This is one that I remember at the time when I was reading it, I was not all that excited about. Um, one, it's not a Zane story. We're used to the idea that a Star Wars comic series will tend to focus around one character. Yeah, we know the movies focus around different ensemble casts, but most of the time in Star Wars comics, you don't get quite as much diversity in your storytelling. It's usually the same group of characters, or it's a group of characters centered around one main character, and that one main character tends to show up pretty much all the time. What we got here is an arc in which Zane factors in relatively little, and uh, Griff doesn't really factor in at all at this point. Because at this point, we are assuming that Griff might be dead, because the events back in uh, Days of Fear, the previous arc from the same trade paperback as this one. Instead, this is a story that pretty much just follows Jeriel and Camper and Roland Dyer, or who we believe to be Roland Dyer at this point. And that made, I think for me, a somewhat dull three issues. I'm not sure what I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting them to get their own story as we saw the characters split. I guess I was expecting that they were splitting, and that just meant that Jeriel and Camper would disappear off, you know, uh, into the sunset for a while, only to come back later. To see them get their own story arc is cool in the concept of this being a an ensemble cast, but at the same time, it meant less Zane, less Jedi action, and for me, it made this a duller segment. Now, rereading it and knowing what's coming and knowing how it all fits together, this is an essential part, and it's very cool to see with hindsight. But I remember originally this being an arc that was one of my least favorite of the early part of this series, if not for its content, than for its significant lack of Zane. 
you know, interesting that you point that out because it, as I was reading the singles, it was the same way. I, it started out really good. You had all the visions and stuff. You're like, ooh, oh, we're getting kind of close to, to what would later become Vindication. But then as we get more into the Arcanian side of things, yeah, I, I was in the same in the single aspect. In the trade, this is kind of like a, a reshifting. It, it almost feels like how the first one kind of took you into a new direction, but now we're getting the same thing with Jarrell and Camper's story. I really actually enjoyed Camper's story more on the second read-through than I ever thought I would have. Uh, Camper's character was a character I really didn't enjoy at all at first, and this gave his character relevance, and it made him very interesting. Uh, he went from being a character I, I could care less about to one that I wanted to know more about. Uh, and so in that regard, they did a very good job. Uh, the art style has shifted again. This is, uh, you know, last episode I talked about how I was going to be a little more critical on some things and a little less on others. Uh, we still have Brian Ching, but now we have uh, Harvey Tolabao. Uh, I'm not sure if I say in his last name right at all, but it, he's got a style similar to Weaver's, but it's also got one of those uh, muscular uh, kind of uh, uh, Eon Flux kind of feels to it. And I don't know, I wasn't too hot on that. Um, you know, there'll be some panels that I'll, I'll draw attention to as we get into the spoiler aspect of it. But let's just say there's a lot of nose dots that, that started to distract me as we went along with Harvey. Okay. Style. I thought I was the only person that was noticing the fact that every single character drawn by Tolabao has some kind of dot on their nose as if everybody needs just a little bit of powder or something on the nose because their, their nose is freaking shining Rudolph the reindeer style <laughs> throughout the entire storyline. I mean, there's, there are some points at which I'm going to give very high praise to Tolabao, but the noses. Yeah. Yeah. That is what, that's definitely something that kicked me out of it and had me scratching my head. I mean, you see that a little bit with Weaver, but Holy hell, we see it way too much with Tolabao. Um, not yeah, it's like every glows. character. You're right. <laughs> And, and and that's that was one thing that threw me off because like Jarrell's character would be very soft in her definition, like with her face, but her hand would be all really, I don't know, way too detailed. And the guys, well, Camper looks awesome. Camper looks flat out awesome. Lord Adiska does not. Uh, I don't. I do not like how Harvey draws him at all. Some of the males, like that, they're, they're just too much details to the chin and stuff. It gives them less of a human look and more of an alien look. Uh, so, so that was moments that really, I, I didn't quite enjoy all of Harvey's style, but there are things that he did well as well. Um, you know, he really rocks the Mandalorian armor of Roland and all the background kind of stuff is always cool, but yeah, the, the, the shifting changing of it. And, and again, getting back to that aspect of, of Jarrell as a whole throughout this whole trade paperback is the most morphing character since Chris Tanzer. I mean, <laughs> But the only thing they keep factual is that she remains attractive. Now, Harvey, I think, really goes into some over-sexualization of her chest on occasion, but they don't they don't tone it up with with her clothing. Her clothing is is very overflowing and, and she's well covered in fabric, but she's very bosom-esque, I would say. Uh, but again, even though she's morphing all over the place, her face, she's got a classic beauty. She's, she's always drawn beautifully in the face. So there is that aspect that while, while she's always changing, she's at every, every beauty, you know, like where you could take like Megan Fox and 12 other actresses that all kind of look similar. And you're like, isn't it weird? Like, did, did they all have the same dad or something? Katy Perry, Megan Fox, and a whole bunch of others. I don't know. I've seen some memes like that. And, and you can almost make the same thing with Jarrell. <laughs> 
well, you know, knowing Hollywood, uh, especially in decades past, it's very possible they all had the same daddy. Um, anyway, <clears throat> um, so getting us into the story itself here, our uh, uh, spoilerific look at this storyline, I think there, there will come a point where we can re return to the Tolabao thing because I think I've got a significant point of, uh, of disagreement on one point with that that we can get to. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Um, we start Nights of Anger shortly after the events of Days of Fear. And instead of focusing on Zane and his predicament back on the Courageous, where he has been taken prisoner as a potential Mandalorian spy, we instead pick up with a vision from Rana Tay, one of the members of the Jedi Covenant. She's having a vision of herself uh, much younger on Terrace, where she is the Padawan um, and races to go find the other, well, masters who are presumably Padawans with her, um, to find that it is the Padawans that the Covenant killed, including Zane, who are now the masters, having put all of the masters, who at this point are Padawans, into the red spacesuits and killed them. The idea of essentially the um, uh, the, the Covenant's uh, prophecy or vision of danger in the future, causing them to kill the Padawans originally, essentially being turned around on them. Uh, and we get Zane in the vision reminding her of the line, uh, you know, the one who confesses lives. And this shows sort of an inner turmoil to Ranate about all that is going on, and we learn as she wakes up uh, from her droid that she basically hasn't been sleeping. Uh, for the most part, she has not been sleeping without the aid of medications. And at this point, she can't even take any more of this sleep medication uh, without it killing her. So of all the members of the Covenant, she is the one that so far we are seeing the most off balance, which will come to play a role as this storyline progresses. I like the fact that we begin in sort of that odd place of seeing what current events are doing to the way the Covenant is perceiving things, not just Zane and his side of things. We're seeing what the villains, if you want to call them that, the villains slash the, the ones who think they're doing good only to have done bad, um, are getting out of this whole process. Well, I liked it too because, you know, she's the one that was the driving force behind the red armor was going to be the Sith and that we need to take them down. And so when, when she looks in and she says, forgive me, in Zane's role... You know, you see all the masters dead in the armor, and it's kind of like, well, by committing to your vision, you've doomed them all. Not just the Padawans to their dark fate, but even to you masters. You're all going to die. And I don't know, that's, that's a little telling as well. I mean, that's what I like about visions is that, you know, you can read it, come up with something. I can read it, come up with something. There's like 58 other people out there that also had other little insights from things that they've read or, or the way that they've been looking at certain things. Uh, so I, I like that, and I love the fact that you know it ends with Zane going, "Open your eyes," and it does the old droid, "Open your eyes, Master Tay." I, I just I always like those dream sequences where they, they run from one to the other like that. And that brings us back to the other half of our ensemble cast, which is Jerry and Camper and quote unquote Roland, who of course we will learn later is Demigol, which completely changes the way you look at his behavior in this arc. Um, they are on. Arcania, uh, homeworld of the Arcanians, which would include Jeriel and Camper, although they are Arcanian so-called offshoots, um, a, a group that was essentially genetically engineered to be laborers 
that now they're not really quite sure what to do with at this point. Um, but they wind up on Arcania, they see a holographic, or well, Jeriel sees a holographic uh, message of welcome from uh, Lord Adaska, who is the leader of uh, Adas Corp, which is a major Arcanian business venture, uh, the big scientific venture and such. But she is very quickly hustled along of, uh, because she is an offshoot, although she is a different kind of offshoot in that uh, her ears are pointed and elven-like and the other offshoots are not, uh, she is basically taken and dumped onto a, what amounts to sort of a segregated vehicle. Um, you basically have the uh, regular Arcanians can go some places, uh, in fact, pretty much all places, but sorry, if you're an offshoot, you are limited in where you can go. We get that immediate sense that, oh, wait, there's something different about Jeriel and Camper. They're not just regular Arcanians. They're going to build up this whole offshoot versus regular Arcanians thing as it goes along, plus the idea that Jeriel is different from either of them in many respects. But we're wondering, why are they on Arcania, and what has happened since the last time we saw them? Turns out that Camper, who had collapsed uh, from an illness of some kind, right as HK-24 was coming out of his hiding place to attack him back in nights of, or uh, days of fear, we instead find that uh, he didn't get better. It wasn't just passing out. This illness is really wrecking his body. And so Roland slash Demigol, pretending to have only learned medicine from watching Mandalorian medics when he's actually a mad scientist himself, um, is doing his best to help um, Camper, only it's not going to be enough. So they have to get him to somewhere nearby. They need to get him to Arcania and to Adascorp to be able to save his life. Only, of course, you know, at this point, uh, Camper has been running away from Adascorp. We don't know why. But we know he's been running away. Everybody in this, this main group is running away from something. Uh, Griff from the Authority says he doesn't want to get caught. Zane from the Jedi Covenant until he can find a way to uh, reveal the truth behind what's going on. Jeriel's running away from something in her past. We don't know what it is yet. We will find that out later on. And, of course, Camper has been running away from Adascorp, which is really first laid out in great detail here. But that may be the only place they can save his life. So, without hardly any other choice, they take him to Arcania, hoping that maybe they can just slip in as some other offshoots, get him some medical treatment. No one will be the wiser, but risking bringing him into the hands of the very people he has been trying to escape. Um, I find it interesting that they would enter the story sort of in media res. We are in the story immediately. Ta-da! They're already on Arcania. But then give us that brief flashback to what literally listed simply as earlier, aboard the last resort, to give us the reason for them being there, and then jump immediately back into the story. I think it's a nice way to tell us why they're there without having to give us the story in sequence, because if they gave it to us in sequence, they'd probably have to use up more pages and more panels to get them to Arcania. Instead, mm -hmm. they can start with them there and just tell us briefly through flashback why they're there, which is another good way to do it. Granted, it costs them, what, two whole pages, but it's better than just giving it to us maybe in some exposition in a panel or two where we don't get to see it. It's a cool cross between uh, between trying to conserve space and yet at the same time letting us see events rather than simply telling us about them. Well, and it gives you that serialized TV feel that, you know, we've said that John Jackson Miller is so good at. I mean, you know, I would almost love to see him tackle a Star Wars live action show. Uh, getting back to Brian Ching's art style, I, I had said last issue that I would I would talk more about it. You know, this is where once you get with the Arcanians, I I, I remember. Uh, oh man, your second favorite character, his master, 
Arkajeth. Uh, Arkajeth's character uh, was Arcanian, and that was the only Arcanian I could think of. And I was trying to think, you know, when we first saw Jarrell and Camper and all them, I'm like, you know, they don't really quite look like the Arcanians that I remember. And I like how, you know, the, the whole subjugation of the offshoots and all that, that, that all starts to explain it. But Brian Ching's art style, when you get into the offshoot village, uh, the one that's with him, uh, Zadawi, she looks so much like Jarrell. And yet so much like Zane. And then we get to her mom or grandma and she looks just, I, I don't know. Ching's noses and chins are also very much alike that this issue or this trade paperback is when I really started to notice that. That was like, oh, wow. You know, like, like I had always seen Ching stuff as, as the quintessential KOTOR art. And this is the first time I was actually starting to critique it more in a way that I was like, hey, you know, that's not so cool. Uh, but that wasn't too bad. I mean, you know, it, it's funny how, you know, Zadwi calls her grandma, uh, Pereira, you know, and Jarrell called camper Pereiro, I believe. And I think that's like grandma or grandpa or, or grandma or grandpa or mother, father, something like that. And then we get that moment where, where the grandma says, Jarrell, such a beautiful name, such an unusual sound, you know, and talking about how, uh, it's from the old tongue and stuff like that. The name Edessa and what it means. She said, oh, it's of the old tongue. Triumph, it means. Not surprised that one died out. The offshoots haven't had much to feel triumphant about in a long time. And the history about how the offshoots went from being kind of accepted to being more outcast black sheeps of their species and the way the purebloods looked down on them, it was an interesting dynamic. And it's something I kind of hope to see play out further in the timeline, like kind of more in Luke's era with the Arcanians and stuff. I'd like to see kind of throwbacks to that. I don't know. It seems like it was a, a turbulent time for Arcania right now. And and that was interesting because it wasn't something I was expecting. And while it wasn't quite something that I was expecting in the aspect of the KOTOR story with Zane as well, it wasn't unwelcome. And of course, it's something that we can very easily relate to because of, you know, real history. You know, we've got the issues of segregation in plenty of countries, including the United States for such a long time. We've got uh, internment camps for Japanese Americans during World War II. And of course, the bigger example that we see uh, being the Holocaust that begins with essentially segregation of Jews until slowly but surely you will eventually wind up with extermination. This idea that, yeah, you're one of us, you're part of our society. We share some of the same background because you are slightly different for some genetic reason. Well, sorry, uh, you don't get to be one of us, which of course is kind of ironic here because if you take sort of the Nazi parallel, you know, what are the people being discriminated against here instead of uplifted? They're the pale, white, blue-eyed people. Um, they're essentially the Aryans of their time, with, you know, going off of how Hitler took the word Aryan and made it mean something completely different than what historically it's supposed to mean. Um, but we pick up with them. Moving along, she does get to meet Zadawi and Zadawi's grandmother, uh, Pereira, uh, of course, the grandmother-type figure. And it's during that conversation that we get our first hint as to some of Jeriel's background, where she says that, you know, uh, Jeryl was a name that she took later. Her parents used to call her Edessa. We will find later uh, what she went through when she was known by her original name of Edessa. Um, but it's a sense that that things will get better for the offshoots. Don't worry. Lord Adaska, he is a good man. Ha! As soon as we hear that Lord Adaska is a good man and we know that uh, Camper has been fleeing from him, we can pretty much assume that this is all just a false front. Lord Adaska is going to be some kind of bad guy. Uh, for this storyline. But by the time we get out of there, we find them uh, engaging in their plan to try to get him medical treatment. 
Uh, Jeriel, with the help of Zanawi, has covered up her tattoos. She's given herself some new pigmentation. She's using her hair to cover up her ears. She's trying to pass herself off as a regular Arcanian, uh, a pure blood, so that she can go to a medical facility, give them data on Camper, who they're immediately going to recognize in scanning the data, is an offshoot, um, and try to basically get information on how they could help him just back on the ship without taking him into a DAS Corp itself. Only they don't realize just how deep this whole trying to catch Camper thing goes, because as soon as she gives them the medical data for him, the biomedical scans and that sort of thing, um, when they run them through the system, it sets off all kinds of flags. Hey, this is Gorman Vandrake. Uh, I believe is how you're supposed to pronounce it. Um, this is Camper, and the security guards come to, in theory, get her to bring Camper in. Only as soon as they show up, we don't know how peaceful they might have acted, because as soon as they get there, she's kicking their butts, pretty much. She holds one of them at gunpoint, only Lord Adaska shows up, like, hey, you know, stop, stop. We just want to help him, and all. And they contact from the Arcanian legacy of the ship, uh, which she has brought aboard. Um, they contact, and we don't really ever see her get brought aboard. We just, all of a sudden, we jump to, they're aboard the Arcanian Legacy now, all of a sudden. Um, Adaska, with Jeriel at his side, contacts Camper saying, you know, uh, I'm Lord Adaska and I can save you, Camper, if you'll let me. And Jeriel herself is there saying, you know, it'll be all right, Camper. Trust me, he can help. Which, of course, is like any other scene in any other movie where the bad guy is offering to help and the good guy is willingly there beside him and you got to assume that whoever it is that they're contacting isn't really trusting it. Like, like you know, is Jeriel somehow under duress in this case? Is it a trap? It's a trap! Only this time, it's not entirely a trap. Because Jeriel is honest in her belief that Adaska is going to be able to help, that he is a good guy, not the bad guy, so hey, Camper, come on down. And we're setting up this whole idea that she has just basically delivered Camper into the hands of his Arch Nemesis, or the company that is his Arch Nemesis as the first issue. And Brian Ching's segment of the story is wrapping up. And there's a great two-page spread there when the Arconian Legacy shows up. And you can see how small the last resort is, you know. And I I just love it. you got all the star lines and the way the ship is. And then when we get to, I believe, the uh, beginning of the next issue, you can also see there's a, the ship, the Arconian Legacy, is docked at a deep space refueling station. And you think about, you know, the last resort wasn't really a tiny ship. I mean, I, I don't know. I could see it being about the size of the Millennium Falcon or so. I mean, I, granted that is a small ship, but it's not like tiny, tiny. Uh, and yet that deep space refueling station makes the Arcanian legacy, which was huge already look small. So that's interesting. Uh, but I love the fact that, you know, when camper sees him, you get the little stars and stuff as he, as he drops out, there's, the aspect to camper that as we get into the next issue that kind of threw me off because it's like at this point he reminded me of a really really old guy and then as we see him later i don't know it's almost like he became a totally different character and i understand the way as we get into the next issue they express how that goes about but it just seems like there's like an aging that went on or like like benjamin know, like buttons he, he pulls the benjamin yeah, buttons he looks yes. like he gets younger as we switch art styles, but I'm wondering how much of that is intentional and how much of it was just the artist basing it on how they see the characterization of the character. And he certainly seemed to be an older character. She calls him grandfather, basically. Um, But once he's healthy, once he's more not clean shaven, but once he's not quite as frazzled looking, 
then he's going to look younger. I wonder if that's just a matter of he's just when he's healthy and in his prime, um, at, granted, in prime health condition, even being an older man, then of course he's going to wind up appearing to be uh, younger, more spry, because that's just the way that we perceive people who look healthy versus those who look unhealthy. We presume we presume that unhealthier looking people look somewhat older in the way that their features change. They carry the illness. Well, yeah, this camper, he kind of reminds me of Mama from Raising Hope. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, But when he's Gorham, I, I don't know. It's not the same. It's like when, when he's younger, I don't know. I see kind of like a brash Anthony Stark. That, of course, brings us to part two of Knights of Anger as they are aboard the Arcanian Legacy. Um, yeah, Adaska is there, uh, as is E.G., the one who back in the previous arc had been the one to spot Camper in those video feeds and know that he is still out there. Uh, I just I just want to comment really fast. I love the fact that E.G. was selected for his ju- his duties because Lord Adaska had a pet that had the name E.G. <laughs> yeah, it, it, they don't really give you any other explanation other than that for why he was chosen. It's kind of odd that he's the Duros who's chosen simply because of the name. Um, but they're all there. They're racing to get Camper to medical attention. He's like, you know, the company, Adascorp, why did you bring me to? You know, he's still angry about that. Uh, and we can't forget the fact that Roland slash Demigal is still with them, and his presence immediately causes him to be uh, not taken into custody, at least that's not what we think at first, but essentially taken into custody to make sure that he can't cause trouble with the war on and everything. So immediately our characters are split from this group. Granted, Griff is presumed dead at this point, though we'll find that he's not. Um, Zane is still in custody aboard the Courageous, and now we've got Roland being separated off to go into temporary custody, or whatever you want to call it briefly, aboard the Arcanian Legacy. Camper's being taken off to supposedly medical care, and Jeriel is left with Adaska so that he can fill her with all these platitudes about how he wants to be a different man than the people of the past. He wants to make things better, and here's how we're going to do it. And all this nice, kindly stuff to make you think that he's this great, you know, philanthropist type of character in many respects. And I must say, one thing that strikes me immediately in this, uh, we'll talk about, I'll talk about one element of the art when we get to the third issue, but I find it interesting that the way that this particular artist, uh, Harvey Tolabau, frames the different panels is somewhat unusual. Um, we're used to the idea, of course, that comics are told in sequential panels, and every once in a while you'll go from having you know, you might have panels like in the old days where they all tended to be about the same size. Sometimes these days you'll have them with panels that go all the way across the page that are shorter. They're sort of more a wide rectangle or ones perhaps that are taller. Um, they're the tall rectangle. But in this case, he makes ample use of crossing panels in a sense um, to help drive the storyline. Um, we've got some panels that are, you know, the whole image is confined to just that panel. But then we have ones like, say, on the second page where Jeriel's head sticks up above the border of the panel that it's coming from and slightly overlaps with the previous panel. On the third page, they've got two characters talking, and as they focus on Jeriel and Adaska, you've got the regular rectangular panel, but both of the characters stick out of the panel. But they only stick out as far as basically um, their uh, shoulder blade type area, because then the artwork stops. It's almost like they are busts of themselves uh, being shown sticking out. He's very good at this sort of sort of overlapping nature, and he does that well as we get to a bigger spread on the fourth page, because there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of panels on these, but you've got sort of one big one on the top left that takes up much of that page, a smaller one on the bottom left that carries over into a little bit on the right. Then you've got other panels 
uh, including one that is directly beside that bottom left panel on the right-hand page. It would be very easy to lose track of which panel you're supposed to read first, especially for a new comic reader. But he manages to use the characters' heads overlapping at times, the word balloons overlapping and connecting between panels to make it so that if you're reading it, not necessarily just trying to follow it with your eyes, but you're actually reading as you go along, the bubbles essentially lead you hand-to-hand through which panels you're supposed to read in what order. I find that while I don't always like his style of art, especially the whole everybody's got the little shiny thing on their nose thing, his use of overlapping, his use of thinking of panel borders as something that is not restrictive, but something that can be used as a way of creating his own transitions to stretch out of them, I think is a very cool thing, and we don't see that nearly as much mm-hmm. with other Star Wars artists as we do with Tolabao here. Yeah, no, that that is a good point. I mean, especially with the way, like, he does it a lot with Jarrell, uh, where her head will come out and over into the next panel and stuff. Like I said, I, I really loved how he captured Camper. I think his version of Camper is probably one of my more favorites. Um, you know, I go back and forth in the aspect of the rest of the style. Lord Adiska is a character, I just, I don't know. I, I don't care for how he's drawn at all. Like, I don't I don't think there's even anyone that draws him in a way that I like the character. Maybe that's just the way the character is supposed to be done. I don't know what it is about the character, but I, I just do not like him at all. Uh, there is a scene, though, when they're walking into, uh, I believe it's his private quarters. Uh, he's got like an art series type of droid cleaning down in the corner. There's a, a camera droid driving about. But what I found was interesting was there's these pillars in the background. And the pillars are being held up by what looks like like these aquatic general grievous looking type creatures that are half in the wall, half out of the wall. Like they almost look like they're about to dive off the ledge, but they also look like they're holding up the pillars. Really cool artwork, little tiny details like that in the background of the opulence of the uh, the Arcanian legacy and all that. Uh, I don't know. I, I found the art in this wasn't terrible. I liked the way that it transitioned and I liked what it was doing with Camper's character. I, I don't know. I'm equal parts like this is Jarrell's story and this is Camper's. Like I, I thought it worked out well the way that they tied in all the Arcanian aspect. And as this art gets further on, why the Arcanians are going to play a prominent role in the Kotor story. I thought by the time they got to that moment, once again, John Jackson Miller did a great job of you know, these, these side trails, you think you're, you're on a one and done episode or a fluffer filler episode. And you find out that no, you just took a little tiny path and we're all looping back around for a, a bigger climax here. Uh, there, there's a scene where we get some of the, uh, space battles and stuff and you get some, uh, some cruisers that kind of look like uh, Republic cruisers and some ships that from the angles, they kind of look like Jedi ships, but then you see, you know, them from other angles and you realize they're not like there's just literally one of those ships from one angle directly from behind. It literally looks like a Jedi interceptor, but then you see it from a slightly up above angle and you realize it's not at all an interceptor, but from that one angle, boy, it really looks like one. And you got, you know, they look like vindicator ships kind of cool. Uh, that, that hearkening back aspect or, or hearkening forward, I guess that we should say, I know me and you, we've talked about how it, it, it was, uh, Knight Errant, and they had the uh, Lardies, and practically the entire Republic arsenal was right there. That was a little off-putting. But in this case, it was done in a way that, that I felt it was being respectful and not taking too much from. Yeah, it is a little weird to see what looks like a Jedi Intercept and what looks like a Venator Star Destroyer right next to it. Um, but, I don't know, it was not something that I necessarily noticed as much on my first reading. It was more when I was going back and just flipping through it that it stood out to me. 
Um, but we find in in that conversation between Jeriel and Adaska that is a very long conversation in general. I mean, they they take up a lot of space in this issue with that conversation to lay down the groundwork of a lot of things. Um, we learn supposedly that while working for Adasco Corp in previous years, Gorman Van Drake, um, of course, the other name for Camper, um, that while there he was uh, exposed to Balinquar's virus, which was a pathogen that they thought was harmless. Turns out that it's harmless to regular Arcanians, but not to offshoots. And that's what he's been suffering from. Of course, we will find as this story goes on that that is complete bull. But it's the beginning of the lie. You feel as though Adaska is giving all kinds of information. He's being so helpful. You're expecting him to, to change things. He's very much the Dracula, you know, welcome to my home. Uh, enter freely and of your own will and leave some of the happiness you bring and all that kind of stuff. Um, you're ah, expecting ah, ah. something to, uh, to blow up in your face. We then switch, of course, as you were saying, to the space battle where the Courageous is under attack by the Mandalorians as we left them at the end of Days of Fear. And they wind up needing to scuttle the ship. Uh, where some of the artwork of the face of, of Karak is just weird. Um, but they need to scuttle the ship at this yeah, point. Some. And we see Morvis, uh, one of these characters that's going to play a bigger role throughout the series and even show up in the pages of Knights of the Old Republic War. Uh, Morvis is there on the bridge. So Morvis and Karak are going to try to escape. And as they try to escape, they wind up running into Carthonassi, who briefly saves Karak, which is going to suck because Karak is going to be the one who's working with Malak, who attacks Talos and kills Karth's family. Um, kind of ironic there that Karth saved his life at that point. Um, but they make their way back to one of the few secure places that are left, which is the hold, the brig. Only to wind up finding that uh, Zane has basically just been sitting there supposedly meditating, though not really meditating. Uh, he's waiting for them to agree to take them with him before he will reveal that, yeah, he's been using telekinesis very slowly, because he's not very good at it, to remove the different screws uh, in a a panel behind him that once it gets removed will lead them all the way back to a little ship um, that Karth can use to fly them out of there. So we're not totally leaving Zane alone, but yeah. very what much so. What a perfect so, place for a prison, right? Right next to the docking bay. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but he's not necessarily the focus of the story, but he's. we got to know what's going on with him because we left them in such a, a difficult predicament previously. And they do make a comment about this, you know, remind me to complain to the contractors if there's anything left of the ship to repair. Remind me to complain about, yeah. you know, the whole, you know, they're putting this one hatch with just a few little screws in it um, so close to the docking bay. But I found it interesting that they at least took a moment to jump us back to those characters so we know what's going on with them because it certainly felt in the previous issue like this was just going to be a Jeriel and Camper story and that, and Roland, of course, slash Demigol, um, and that we weren't really going to see Zane, because that was starting to bother me, again, on that first reading, because I expect these to be Zane stories, and we didn't really get much Zane in uh, issue number 16. Fortunately, we do here, at least for a little bit in 17, to push his story along, and without us really realizing it, Morvis's story along as well. Now, was Morvis ever in the video game? No, he was not uh, in the games. I believe this was a uh, John Jackson Miller creation. Oh, okay. Well, the only thing in about this scene that really bothers me is, you know, as I said before, they did a moment where they were kind of explaining away uh, the changes in the armor. And Morvis reaches over and he's like, Admiral, those uniforms. And the Admiral goes, I know, Neo-Crusader shock troops. The Admiral will be thrilled to know their intel was actually right about something. Now move. But not one of these Mandalorians is wearing Neo-Crusader shock trooper armor. And that 
kind of throws me off. It's like, well, you had a great opportunity here, but not one of them is drawn in the armor. So while it was a good scripted idea, well, no, the but artist they, didn't they, quite they, nail they're, it. They're right? wearing Neo-Crusader shock trooper armor. They're not wearing traditional Neo-Crusader armor. These are like... It's oh. it's like these are sort of the Shadow Stormtrooper version type things. These are the uh, these are a different form of armor that looks much more like what we're eventually going to see with Boba Fett and Jango Fett's armor, um, especially the one in the, the back of the shot, uh, than the regular Neo Crusader armor. So it's it's I didn't take it as as they're Neo Crusaders. This is what their armor looks like. So presumably they've seen that plenty of times before. So much as they're saying, holy crap, these shock troopers that are a variant of them are actually real. It's like someone saying, you know, they expect to see the army coming at them, and it turns out that it's the rangers. Or they see uh, the navy coming at them, and it turns out it's the seals. It's like, this is the special forces group. Look at this different armor. Holy crap, they really exist. Intelligence must have been right. That's how I took it. Oh, see, and I, I just assumed that the Neo-Crusader armor was that, that armor that we saw in the KOTOR where it was really long, and it didn't really have a neck. The helmet kind of went down into the shoulder, and I just assume, you know, when he goes, Admiral, those uniforms, that the uniforms were going to be the telltale sign that they were the Neo-Crusader uniforms. And, and those uniforms do not look like anything that I always associated with the Neo-Crusader armor. But, well, yeah, well, all okay. the other Mandalorians that we see, like like Mandalore the Ultimate and such, that's the Neo-Crusader armor. That's the traditional Neo-Crusader armor. This is just a variant of it. This is that shock trooper type that is apparently different. Um, but it, they mm. fight them off. They manage to uh, to get themselves down to a ship so that they can escape. And we jump back to another, you know, potentially forgotten character, which was Roland. Now we're back on the Arcanian Legacy, and we find that Roland has been beating the crap out of all the, the Brig guards, uh, slash Demigol, whatever, has been beating the crap out of all these Brig guards. And in talking with Adasco, we learn that there's something Adasco wants from him. That Roland has become Roland the Questioner and is somewhat of, somewhat iconic now amongst his people. And at some point, he's gonna want Roland to contact someone for him, which granted would give away where they are, give away his existence that he's still around, um, but that yeah, yeah, you might be needed by Adaska, and we don't ever learn in this arc who that is. We just get to a point where he asks him to make the contact and to look up some information, but we never do find out who it is he's supposed to contact until the next arc. But in giving him this sort of this is something I want from you type of thing. Um, it also allows Demigol slash Roland to finally get out and get a tour of the medical facility, which, of course, as Roland, shouldn't be that big of a deal. But knowing that it's Demigol, you're giving basically a mad scientist access to all of your extremely advanced medical knowledge. If you're assuming he's not going to understand it, you are wrong. You just put him in sort of the candy shop and the kid's got a sweet Yeah, dance. no doubt. Way to blow that one, Lord Adiska. <laughs> Well, and he also, he has that moment where he says, you know, uh, he's talking, you helped capture the scientist Demigol, and you were, and you were to return with him to Coruscant, only you slipped away. Now we know where you went. There are many Mandalorians. What makes you so sure? Your armor matches the descriptions the Jedi gave. They say Mandalorians are wearing identical armor these days, but not like yours. And again, getting back to that whole aspect of the Neo-Crusader armor is starting to become the, the more dominant armor that we will eventually see. And that moves us into what amounts to essentially the final sequence of issue number two out of three. And that is a brief conversation between Jeriel and E.G. talking about, you know, his origins and stuff. And E.G.'s like all friendly, like, like, yes, you know, I'm a nice guy. See, you should talk to me. Oh, isn't that sweet? Only... 
as soon as he turns off the communication, we find that it's all been bull. The whole Balanquar's virus stuff and the backstory of how it is that uh, uh, Gorman Van Drake uh, was supposedly uh, uh, exposed to it at one point and all that kind of stuff. Turns out it's all bogus um, because there's Camper alive and well um, and being forced to work on a project for a DAS Corp. Basically, it turns out that, yeah, he wasn't sick with any kind of special uh, weird virus or anything. They had left the ship sitting on terrace for so long that a bunch of crap got built up inside its ventilation system. So when they closed it up to do uh, internal air circulation and such, once they lifted off in the last resort, um, something, some kind of gunk in the ship managed to make him sick. It's the same thing like why I have to take, uh, use my Simbacort, and sometimes I used to have to take allergy medicine. Now I've got allergy shots that I took for years that I've finally done with, uh, or else I would wind up getting migraines or getting ill off of uh, some of this, the, the, the pathogens or whatever, the allergens that are in the air uh, when I would go to work at the, at the high school where I work. You know, it's one of those things where it's just, yeah, he basically had an allergy, and they've managed to isolate the allergy and help him out. But now they're still playing up with this fake video feed, playing up this idea that he is still ill, and Jeriel thinks that they're, you know, that she's just there until he gets better, when it's really that thanks to Adaska being so close to Jeriel, she is now the bargaining chip to force Camper to finish working on the project, whatever it was, we don't know in this issue yet, that he was working on before he ran off and took off from Adascorp. Um, so we end this issue with the, uh, uh, the, the realization that Camper is now being forced to do something sinister, whatever it is, and it's Jeriel's life on the line, whether she realizes it or not. And speaking of Jeriel, uh, we get to this a little bit more in the next issue, but she is wearing a somewhat sexualized form of clothing, but we'll touch on that a little bit in the, uh, the next issue. But I think this one, uh, again, it's another of these solid issues, nothing really to complain about with the second part of this arc. It sets up uh, really, honestly, it sets up so much that you got to wonder if they're going to be able to wrap it all up in one issue. And, of course, it turns out that they don't because this arc leads directly into Daze, D-A-Z-E, of hate, the next arc. What's crazy is that Harvey managed to put a nose dot on even a Duros. Like, it doesn't even have a nose. How did you manage that? Uh, the one thing about the fact that it was the last resort that was killing Camper is why was only Camper the only one affected? Okay, originally they had a great reason why that was going to be. But now if it's just because there was something growing in the vents, wouldn't everyone on board also be just as at risk or well, have a well, part of it? not necessarily. I mean, even if you're thinking that it could be, you know, that it's going to affect um, all offshoots, you know, because it shouldn't affect Roland because he's in a helmet slash Demigol because um, he's in a helmet, assuming that it's ventil that it's that it's filtering anything. Um Nobody else who was on there was an Arcanian or an Arcanian offshoot. It was just the two of them. And we're going to find that there were things that were done with Edessa slash Jeriel early on. So it would make sense that she might have a different um, uh, immunity to things, a different susceptibility or lack thereof to certain allergens. But, I mean, even if you look at human beings, I mean, I'm allergic to certain things, but that doesn't mean that everybody is. You know, my wife is allergic to some things, but not the same things I'm allergic to. My students, many of them have allergies, but not always to the same thing. Just because you happen to be of the same species or the same race within a species doesn't mean you're going to be allergic to all the same things. And they didn't say it was a virus or something getting them. They specifically said it was an allergen. So it would make sense that not everybody would necessarily be affected similarly. 
Um, I can imagine, okay. you know, if, if the pollen was really bad and I was feeling really crappy because of a certain type of pollen and other mm. people around me weren't allergic to the same thing, they might look at me and wonder if I've got a disease or something when it's just that I'm getting the crap knocked out of me by an allergen that they're not susceptible to. Yeah, you're true, because EG does say once we identified the allergen. So, yeah, I get, okay, there we go. Because, yeah, right now, my, my I've got two fir trees out front, and they're dumping pollen like crazy. I mean, I posted it on the Facebook page. I literally sprayed some water in there, and it just yellow dumped down. My entire sidewalks are yellow right now. It's like, oh, my God. Uh, so, okay, I, I can get around that. Um, you know, the my, my complaints are all very minor complaints, and you've kind of walked me around most of them. So I, I can be content. <laughs> That brings us into issue number three, the last part of this uh, three-part arc, which is, of course, meaning that we are going to the midpoint here by the end of this issue of that broader four-arc maxi-arc, the days-slash-nights arc here. And it jumps us to Telerath, where we were for Reunion, and we find that Lucian Dre is there, and people are freaking out because the Republic fleet and the Courageous have been defeated. The Courageous itself has been essentially destroyed which means that there's nothing stopping the Mandalorians now, or at least that's the fear at this point. So Lucian contacts the individual we will learn is one of the main antagonists of this entire series, who we've really only seen very briefly in the past, Hazen, thought to essentially be the uh, the assistant or the protege to Lady Crindadre, who is Lucian's mother and the leader of the Jedi Covenant uh, concept there. Um, but basically... It appears that the Covenant is becoming more and more desperate. We learn that they're turning to other circles of seers, um, including one that's there for investment advice, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, that's kind of what we do today. You know, we expect investment people to somehow be able to see the future. Um, that basically, you know, they're, they're, they're looking into what comes next uh, in this conflict that's out there and says that there is some other force. It's like a hunger out there, this other danger that is coming to the fore. But we don't know what it is. We will find out by the end of this issue kind of what that may be. But there's this sense that, you know, things are changing. The tide is turning and things are getting darker. Things are getting worse, which, of course, goes back to the idea of, you know, as you head towards the midpoint of a story or at least uh, two thirds into a story, put your characters in a really, really bad position because then it's, you know, the, the job of the last act or so to pull them out of that mess. Yeah. You know, when we get to this part, I think. Something that threw me off was that Dre, I didn't recognize him as Dre right off. It was, in fact, his his Jedi robes that made me realize it was him. And then, of course, you know, the droid. Oh, Master Lucian yeah, Dre. It's, like, it's basically vanilla ice in Dre's robes. <laughs> yeah, okay, I can see that. Uh, there is a panel, though, that I, I liked uh, where she's talking. She goes, but I urge you to flee, Master. With the Mandalorians coming, there may not be much time. The way that panel is drawn, they're standing in a doorway and it's tilted kind of sideways, like somebody turned the camera. And instead of them being, you know, completely silhouettes, uh, you know, you can see everything behind them. But the gold in the belt of the codpiece or whatever you want to call that on on Dre's armor glows, uh, as do some of the hinge joints and stuff on the droid. I, I just thought it was an interesting contrast, an interesting use of that panel. Uh, again, that's that is one thing that I will give. Harvey, he, he really goes out of his way of utilizing the panels. Whether or not I always like the characterizations of the characters, you know, I, I only have issue with his characters. Everything else is, is glorious. I mean, he does a really good job of, of all the other details. But that's like the, the one thing that, that just kept drawing me back was the, 
I don't know the a- the Aeon flux of of the characters. I mean, Dre really just looks like one of the main characters from that that MTV show, and I've never been a fan of that kind of style. So that that would occasionally kind of grind on me. But I, I don't know. By this point, there's been so many just different changes in how frequently that it would change from one artist to the other that it didn't throw me that far off. In fact, I think at this point, the hardest thing I was having was I didn't realize that Harvey was not Weaver anymore, and I was just like why is Weaver suddenly drawing all these nose dots? Because the nose dots, it is so prevalent on every single character. And you're right, Nathan, it is dang near every single character that has one. That I, I just got to that point where I was looking and it's like, even if it's not the same big one, like some of them, it's like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, like you said, right on the tip. And other times it's, it's just a little tiny circle on the side of the nose. But it's like, there is always a circle there. It's like, this could be a drinking game to get people really slammed. I'm surprised the space slugs, the exogorse we see later on, don't have those on them. Um, speaking of the artwork, though, this is where I wanted to bring up that point about uh, this guy, uh, Tolabao's artwork here. We move into the next segment, which is another conversation between Adaska and uh, Jeriel, where he's just feeding her a line of bullcrap about what's going on. And we pick up with a long, very tall shot of her where we see her entire dress. And this is what I she was wearing at the say, end of the pre... What? I dare say this is an iconic image, though, because this yeah. one pops up a lot. Yeah, this is this is her wearing what she wore at the end of the last issue, and it's the Joe Yowza type of clothing. Uh, very much uh, emphasis on the sexualization of the character in that particular shot. But I have to say, broadly speaking, this artist, along with the other artists in this arc, don't seem to really over-sexualize Jeriel all that much, given what we've seen with other characters in other stories. Yes, she's standing here, and they do a shot of the entire outfit. It's sexualized, but at the same time, not... I mean, it's hard to describe. Like, the fact Vulnerable. that he uses... Well, he uses such clean lines... And he does it in a way where she's just kind of standing there. She's not leaning forward. She doesn't have some kind of pouty look on her face or something. It's just sort of a, here she is, and this is what she happens to be wearing because it's what Adasco wanted her to wear. But then after that shot, for most of this, you know, they're not putting heavy emphasis on her. Like in most of these comics, you would wind up seeing, well, okay, well, Jeriel's wearing that, so let's make sure that in every shot we show her from the waist up so we're always emphasizing her breasts. So we're always emphasizing the cleavage so that she's leaning forward in so many shots. And that's not the case. Heck, most of the times we see Jeriel in this issue, it's from her neck or from basically her shoulder blades up. And what she's wearing beneath that has no bearing on anything. She will later change into another outfit that could be seen as somewhat sexualized because it's a a female uh, dress, right? So it's going to have at least part of the top somewhat opened up. But that is even less pronounced and less played up here. It's basically their way of saying, yes, a character can dress in a sexy way, but that doesn't mean we have to basically ham it up. We don't have to turn this into the pages of the the Knights of the Old Republic uh, swimsuit issue or something like that. It's simply, you know, it's like with the males. The males may wear something that looks kind of uh, sexy to a female reader, um, like some of the things they do with Cade Skywalker. But just because they're wearing something that is somewhat uh, sexy, they don't have to over-sexualize the character and do something with that. I think that's somewhat what we get with um, Ahsoka Tano in The Clone Wars. While they over-sexualize her costume, I don't feel as though most of the time they ever did anything to try to sexualize the character in the way they framed her in the shots of the show. 
it wasn't like they were constantly focusing things so that you can make sure you see the boob window or something. You know, they focused on the same way they would cover her no matter what she was wearing because it's how it services the story. Um, mm -hmm. Kudos very much to Tolabao for being able to do that, for making a character who we know to be a sexy character uh, who is wearing something that is a sexy form of dress without over-sexualizing the character and doing so outside of that brief establishing shot that really is needed to be there to establish the character. I'm not sure how they could have done that shot in a different way unless perhaps they showed her from behind where you don't see the the somewhat more open front. Yeah, you know, I've always liked Jarrell's character. Uh, you know, she's she's been a classic beauty. Like I said, the, the face, while it always morphs, they've always gone out to give her that classic look. Uh, while she is well endowed in the in the bosom area and she is a slender of frame lady, I've always seen her as two sides. Uh, you know, she's always been described as a warrior. We've always watched her. She's a fierce fighter. But her background and her family life has always left her vulnerable. And Camper has always kind of taken care of her. And so, like, with this image, like, I, I just see the vulnerability. The way she's standing, she, I, I don't know. I feel like she feels like she's being on parade. And she did talk about, because Lord Adaska talks about how, you know, he gave her some, some really nice dresses and stuff. And she talked about how the last resort was parked on an old warehouse where she used to dress up all the time. And so it's nothing new for her. But you do see kind of like this aspect in her face in that image of where she's not really comfortable in the stuff that he's putting on. At least that's the impression I get. Uh, in that same panel, though, this is probably the only kind of, of anything. And, and I, I think as a guy, you know, we're kind of more dialed into this with pinups and stuff like that. There is a scene where they do have uh, one of her boobs from an angle where you can kind of see a little pointy action going on through the shirt that's about it though you're absolutely right they do a very good job of keeping that kind of stuff down while Jarrell as a character has a sexiness that is equal to Doris Talon there is no sluttiness that comes with that Sith uh and I, I just yeah I, I gotta give Harvey the props there too there is a scene here a, a panel while her and as Adaska are talking where she goes all right tonight you see the one I'm talking about uh you said she says what she says all right tonight it's at the bottom on your uh, Okay, left. yeah, yeah, yeah. I see it. Okay, now when you look at that panel, tell me you don't see Phoebe Buffet from Friends. Honestly, I don't know who I see. I mean, I guess I can sort of see that. It, what I saw was she looks different than she looks in most of the other shots, and she definitely looks like that is something that was drawn using a photo reference of someone out of Hollywood, though I wouldn't have been able to place who. Yeah, I, I saw her and I, I saw the, the lady that plays Phoebe from Friends and I was just like, wow. And But that's the thing. It's like each time she's drawn, she's drawn different. But every time she still has this classic beauty about her, but it's a, a different look to the character. It's like like even in that panel, when you look around on all the different versions of her face, she never really looks the same facially. Which is funny because at least in this case, it's different artists doing it. Because I'm thinking back to, I've got, uh, uh, thanks to Dave Sinden um, of uh, the A Few Good Clones podcast, uh, at the most recent celebration, there was this special art print that was being done that Jan Dersima had done of the main characters of Star Wars Legacy. And in that image, you've got Cade, you've got Jariah Sin, Delia Blue. It's a very cool image. Uh, and they were doing signed prints of them there. So he was able to get it for me. I sent him the money. He got it for me and shipped it out to me. So I've got this cool framed legacy image signed by Jan Dersima up on my wall above my DVD case. It's kind of uh, perpendicular to my Star Wars book and video shelves that you see in the background on the uh, from the Star Wars Library YouTube videos and such. But that image is Cade Skywalker's face looks very, 
very different to me than the way we see him in the comics. Uh, and that's the same artist. So, yeah, while her face does change quite a bit, at least in Jeriel's case, it seems like the excuse is that these are different artists' take on the character, whereas sometimes you do run into characters who seem to morph and change between different art by the same artist. Um, that well, just seems a I mean. lot. In this two-page spread, this is all done by Harvey, but when you look at Jarrell's face, she never looks actually the same in any of these panels. I mean, even Harvey did it, but... I can't fault just Harvey alone, though, because it's like the character herself is just always morphing, but always beautiful at the same time. It's really bizarre. That leads us into a little bit more of the background of what all is going on, because then we see Adaska go to meet with E.G. without anybody else there and winds up getting a chance to talk to uh, Camper slash uh, Gorman Vandrake here about what's going on. Um, and he points out, you know, that they're going to... Uh, not only finish what Camper started, which we still don't know what it is, we're going to find that out by the end of the issue, but also that he's dropping off a blood sample from Jeriel. He wants to have Jeriel's blood tested because she doesn't seem to be a normal offshoot and such. Uh, for an offshoot, there's something about her that is so pure-blooded. Find out what you can. And we will find that this is what's going to help lead to some things happening with the Demigol storyline, but here it's just almost kind of there as an afterthought. The, oh yeah, here, let's run this sample. We then move to the uh, the lab where Demigol is being allowed access to all kinds of stuff that he's reading. They think it's Roland. Surely all this medical stuff's over his head. But no, he's just absorbing it like mad because it's Demigol. He's going to be able to use this stuff later. Uh, not a good thing. We're being overseen by a couple of scientists, one of whom appears to be a human being with a uh, no no parts to his eyes, I guess. No pupils. I guess he's supposed to be Arcanian. Yeah. Um, but he Arcanian. looks basically like Camper, briefly. Um, but we see them, and we find this is where, finally, Adaska makes his move as far as, okay, Demigol slash Roland, you know, a little bit ago, I told you that I would let you out if you would do something for me and contact somebody for me. Here's who I want you to contact. He's like, holy crap! And here's why I want you to contact him. Um, and basically, a deal is made. Basically, Roland slash Demigol wants, in return, Jeriel. Wants her to go with him. Which begs the whole question, wait a second, what is Roland's special interest in Jeriel? You think at this point that it might be just because he wants to look out for her, or maybe he's become infatuated with her or something. We will find out later that it's all part of the bigger plot um, of what Demigol wants out of studying Jeriel, because at this point he still has not realized who Jeriel actually is, that she is Adessa, who he knew as a child. But again, it's all done in sort of a, um, it, it's like when you see in the TV shows, it's like, okay, here's my plan. And then it fades out and goes to the next scene kind of stuff. Uh, and you hear the people saying, wow, that sounds like a good plan, without ever actually knowing what the plan was. Um, here we find he's asking him to contact someone. We see Roland's reaction, but we don't know who it is that he wants Roland to contact. Uh, we see the explanation of, uh, you know, uh, perhaps the message I have for you to send will amaze you in turn. Take a look. And we see Roland say, this is amazing. This was locked in the old man's head, but we don't know what it is because we're not seeing what the hologram is showing him. So he does finally agree to send the message uh, in order to get his freedom, of course. And he says, you know, uh, if the old man proves no longer necessary, yes, I will give you the girl. So he's going to get Jeriel if Camper's knowledge isn't necessary anymore. Um, but I find it interesting that they keep us, 
you know, we're in the loop in the sense that this needs to progress the plot, but at the same time, we're not in the loop on the specifics, allowing it to still be a surprise by the end of this issue and as the next arc begins. Nicely done. You know, and and they did keep it a surprise in the aspect of who it was that Roland was supposed to contact. But in the next panel, I, to me, it was pretty much a, a no-brainer that it was obviously Mandalore that, that they were sending him back to. Which, you know, you have that conflict of, well, do I stay hidden or not? But I don't know. I, I thought it played well. It was interesting. Uh, when he says the girl, though, I was curious if that was because he'd already seen that Jarrell's sample had gone through. Uh, but, but, you know, you've read all of the, uh, the mad scientist, Dr. Demigol's notes, whatever that one was, uh, there was nothing there to tie that together. Right. So at this point he does not know that Jarrell is Odessa that he has a tie to, right. That's just, this is just personal interest in a different direction. Yeah. That is something that he learns during the course of, uh, days of hate, the next storyline, which deals with a scene that we actually see in that that at first we're like, who the heck is it that we're seeing and what the heck are they doing? So he's going to learn very soon. At this point, he just knows there's something different about her, um, but it's during the testing of the exogorths and everything that he will have the opportunity um, to realize, wait a second, Jeriel is Adessa, one of his long-lost test subjects slash students from Osadia. Uh, at this point, it's just a suspicion that there's something special. In fact, he sort of berates himself in the journal for not realizing it sooner huh well you know the, the whole aspect of what lord adaska wants to do with her with the pure blood aspect and how he thinks she may have pure blood or, or whatever that always did confuse me even as it goes i i love though how you know because i will adaska goes i will need her why do you want her and roland goes personal interests i see how do you know my interest isn't personal Jarrell is an offshoot and your name is Adaska. That about covers it, right? <laughs> and he's like, you're seemingly less Mandalorian all the time. Very well, then. Yes, my interests. Yes, my interest is strictly business. Uh, and, and even MD had had something similar to say, like a few panels before that, you know, where he's like, uh, uh, certainly uh, not wanting to seem importante, my lord. But, well, uh, she doesn't. Uh, well, forgive me. She doesn't seem your type. No, she doesn't. Does she? And. You know, there's that aspect of, okay, what, what is Lord Adaska really going to do? Because there's, you get this aspect, like, you know, a part of him kind of covets her, but obviously, you know, you can't have that happening. At least that's the way it seems. It seems like the, the big taboo there, uh, almost seems kind of like it's a Southern plantation back in the, uh, olden days. And, you know, he's, uh, kind of helping himself to the free labor, if you will. Like, you know, they don't want you to be messing around with no offshoots there, boss. I, I don't know. That just seemed weird. And I, I don't know if it was ever really addressed. That's the aspect of a reread. You know, you, you'll go through this stuff and you forget about certain aspects. And then you go back. Oh, yeah, that's what happened. Uh, like, you know, later aboard the uh, Arcanian Legacy here. That's the moment where Jarrell talks about, I got to play dress up a lot growing up on the last resort. It was parked over the remains of an apparel warehouse, but it was never anything like this. And, you know, again, here she's wearing full cover. The only thing in this that would even be called any kind of sexualization is just the fact that both her shoulders are hanging out the top and that it is a low cut top. She is a well endowed female character. And that is about it. Everything else is completely covered to the point that she's got flowing fabric on the bottom. But this doesn't at all tone down on the sexiness of the character. She is still a beautifully drawn character. 
but they're not over sexualizing the character, which which is a plus. And Harvey does a good job of that. Whereas that scene, it's one of the last two scenes of the issue and of the arc. We get a brief scene aboard the little ship that has a uh, Morbus and Kareth and Zane and Karth aboard it, um, in which we see them getting contacted. Well, Kareth technically uh, being contacted by E.G. Basically saying, uh, attention, we have an offer to make to you, so uh, how's about you all swing on by the Arcanian Legacy because we have something that might win this war for you. Which is the, oh, really, so something big must be coming, whatever it was that they've been having camp or work on must be finally coming to fruition. We don't know what it is yet. The final scene is sort of a combination of uh, revelation to Jeriel and to the audience. We get some banter, of course between her and Adaska, but he's starting to show his true colors. Uh, he's revealing why he believes that the Arcanians are going to be the center, essentially, of the galaxy again in the future, um, where he reveals what we know of as space slugs, right, from Empire Strikes Back, these so-called uh, exogorths, he calls them. They're essentially giant space-traveling slug things that eat... Uh, certain minerals and whatnot, certain complex elements that go dormant when they're not feeding and have the ability to travel on essentially um, uh, solar winds or whatever you want to call them um, that are going to take them across the galaxy. Um, and he intends on controlling them and using them as a weapon by uh, giving them implants that let them essentially travel not just very, very slowly in a dormant state, but essentially go through hyperspace, essentially putting hyperdrives on these creatures to send them at wherever it is that the, uh, the enemy happens to be. And it turns out that when they were first discovered, uh, they were being studied by a group of scientists that included Gorman Vandrake, a.k.a. Camper, and it was he who figured out how to control and contact these creatures. Right? They go through solar winds to the next best suitable place, um, but they've got to be, they can be drawn somewhere. They can be essentially... Uh, awoken and driven in a particular direction. And one of the places uh, that they've set up one of their mining operations, Omanoth, a dying star, uh, happens to be a place with asteroids and stuff around it that's going to be a great feeding ground for them. So they've drawn a bunch of those exogorths there, or I guess they were drawn naturally there, which is convenient because now they can use us as a showcase to basically sell this technology to either the Republic, the uh, Jedi uh, revanchist movement, uh, the Jedi Crusaders, or to the Mandalorians. Uh, and we get the, the final bum, bum, bum kind of moment where he said, where Jeriel says, they're a plague. And he simply says, just so. And now, thanks to Gorman Vandrake, the man you call Camper, this plague works for me. Bum, 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 to be continued in Days of Hate. <laughs> that was a great moment. You know, the other thing about that scene that, that I like, too, is it gets back to that whole aspect of the purebloods, what he wants with with Jarrell. You know, uh, he goes, I'm glad you think so, especially knowing how Camper felt about the company. That was long ago. I'm sure whatever it was wasn't your fault. I hate to disagree with such a lovely guest, but you're wrong. I don't think we can hide from our people's actions. And the Arcanian people have acted without thinking again and again. We have tampered with many species, Jarrell, but the worst. The worst was when we tampered with ourselves. You and Camper both are artifacts of our self-destruction. And she goes, you know, you're joking, right? I'm very serious. You know, the offshoots, subspecies engineered for short-term industrial purposes, 
yet still with us. And that was, that was kind of, I don't know, that, that was a, a cryptic, morbid kind of thing to say. You know, he's like, they, you guys were engineered just for a couple jobs and yet you're still around. Like, you know, if, if we'd have thought that through, you'd all died by now. But no, here you all are. Like, you know, because they tampered with their genes, they created a whole nother species. And yet this species is totally subjugated. They are, are completely, you know, the outcasts of society and the blight on their people. And, and you just kind of feel that coming across right now, you know, and then he goes, uh, Arcania is in pain drill. The horrible things we've done are just an expression of that. But I think the true Arcanian race can be restored, starting with you. What, what are you talking about? I have EG running tests on your blood samples. Once we understand your genome, we may be able to see that your children will be true Arcanians. And of course, you my, hey, it's just dinner. You're getting way ahead of yourself. But there's that aspect of, okay, is he not a true Arcanian? Are, are there no true Arcanians anymore? I mean, that, that wasn't actually explained enough to make me really, you know, that aspect of what's going on with the Arcanians and the offshoots and what they've done to themselves. I want to know more. There's a little mystery there that, that, that immediately got me intrigued. So that was fun. Uh, but the aspect of then with the, with the Exegoras, uh, those were just, man, that was insane. And the fact that, you know, they stumbled across them in the same place was like, Oh man, how cool is this? Again, getting back to that aspect of now you're going to have everything tied together. You got that that calm breath before the next hurdle. And this is definitely the end of this is, is Arco Adaska's James Bond villain moment. Uh, I couldn't quite tell whether it was simply that he is bragging about what's going on and finally revealing it to Jerry as dum 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 see look at what I have wrought you know and he's trying to basically impress her assuming that she is going to be with him on this, uh, or if it's him revealing it thinking, I don't care whether or not you find it disgusting anymore. Um, I'm revealing my evil mustache-twirling plans, and since you have nowhere to go, you are simply going to go along with whatever it is that I want, whether you like it or not. It's hard to tell, but in being hard to tell, it is kind of like that whole James Bond villain type of moment where, you know, you're nearing the end or the fruition of your plan, so it's time to reveal it all to somebody so that the audience knows what exactly it is that's going on, even if revealing it may not be in your best interest from a tactical standpoint here. I mean, it's the one time that we that we see that in this arc, really, where it's just a lot of exposition designed to get us, you know, involved or understanding what's going on, but at the same time, that exposition manages to, in a lot of ways, out our villain as a villain when he'd been spending so much time trying to present himself as, you know, the rational one, the helpful one, the one that Jeriel should look up to and want to be around as opposed to being the villain of the piece. It kind of reminds me of that moment uh, in the Smallville series. Uh, there's a moment in which, uh, I guess it was, I think it was like Lex Luthor was being controlled by something or corrupted by something. There's a point where it's him and Jonathan Kent, and he turns to Kent and says, I guess you were right, Mr. Kent. I am the villain of the story. And it's kind of mm -hmm. what Adaska's doing here. It's sort of the bum, bum, bum. And you wonder if revealing this is really in his best interest or if this guy is such an egomaniacal jerk that he has no choice but to spout off about his plans because that is simply just who he is. A typical uh, megalomaniacal supervillain character flaw that always winds up playing a role in their defeat. 
I, I can see that. I mean, and, and the great thing about this last, when we get to the second to last page, it's a great two page spread with all of the space slugs. And again, the Arcanian legacy, this ship that we know is huge, gives you perspective of how much bigger these ones are. I mean, you know, think back to Empire Strikes Back. And when the Falcon comes flying out of that asteroid and, and the space slug comes chasing it, that thing is tiny compared to these. I mean, that is just, that, that's what, what boggled my mind there was the fact that, you know, what is it? Uh, episode four, we get to Dega and then we see in other cartoons and other comics that Dega's can be huge. And same thing, you know, once again, something you thought was, was just a trivial thing. It's like, no, 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 no. That thing can get much, 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 much bigger. And that I think adds to the maniacal aspect of it because I mean, it's like pulling up into Endor and being Emperor Palpatine, you know, like, hey, I got a Death Star right here. Now what you going to do? I, I don't know. Maybe that that backs it up. Maybe that gives him the bully aspect of when, you know, you get certain guys around 28 other friends and suddenly that one guy that went from being a really nice guy is suddenly the biggest jerk he ever met because he's now got that power vacuum filled. I don't know. Maybe that's what we're seeing here, that now that he's there, he knows he's so close to selling it that he's got that power and he's just he can't hold back. It's Christmas time. Maybe this will be the next thing that we wind up seeing in a, a Disney film, given the fact that apparently thanks to Once Upon a Time, we know that the Sarlacc exists within the universe of Once Upon a Time now. Um, but that's a whole other issue. Now, I would say that this is a good arc. Uh, I like the fact that while this arc and the previous arc are arcs unto themselves, they have their own titles, the Days Nights thing basically gives us four arcs that all link together. So that one ends in sort of a situation going from bad to worse and then this one leaves us again in sort of a cliffhanger of things going bad just because it's the end of an arc doesn't mean we have to tie everything up in a neat little bow we can leave it on a bad place a bad cliffhanger in a sense you could say that sort of the latter half of this arc and the latter half of the previous arc is sort of the empire strikes back type of thing in that they're leaving our characters in a bad position they're gonna have to find a way out of it's just that Whereas, you know, if this was a, a Star Wars film, we'd be intercutting back and forth between the different groups of characters. And in this case, they chose to essentially tell Zane and Griff's storyline in the previous arc. And then they're telling basically Jeriel and Camper and Roland's storyline, Demigo's storyline, in this arc. Um, so that they could be somewhat shorter in terms of just the, the way they're encapsulated within the series. So definitely one to check out. But again, if you haven't read the previous story arcs, it's not really going to make sense. And if you have read the previous story arcs, it'd be kind of nuts not to just continue reading at this point, so it may be kind of pointless to offer a recommendation this time around. Yeah, this one, it's fun. I, I like the Empire Strikes Back feel. At this point, you think Griff's dead, you think Slissick's dead, uh, LB's kind of messed up, you know, what's going on with, with Camper, Jarrell, Roland, they're all prisoners of a sense you know they're all on the arcanian legacy will they get off we don't know zane he's been captured i mean it, it is the down note for all these characters uh you know it, it's a great setup as an arc by itself it's a fun ride uh, i i i again i yeah i'm in the same boat as you i don't know how how i would say just to go out and get this one because there's so much going on in the grander scheme of things this one's got a lot of untold uh, there are so many things going on that you will get the most out of this arc knowing what is going to come down the road and coming back rereading it. There's all these great little tidbits, little things that were hidden right there in plain sight that you did not know were there. I really enjoy where we're going. Uh, it's been a fun ride and it continues to build. I like the fact that, that they decided to spread this story over two trade paperbacks. I think it was a good decision. 
I, I would like to see more series do more decisions like that. You know, I'm a big fan of New Jedi Order because that was a, a series that was plotted out more than other series. You know, they, they can do that. They have proven they can do that. And again, John Jackson Miller shows that, hey, it can be done in comics. Kudos. I would also say that reading these, you might want to check out uh, John Jackson Miller's website, farawaypress.com, because he has detailed notes on the individual issues, which might help you get more out of things as you're reading them. I and he does a good job of not spoiling other stuff as you're going through and reading them. They were put out uh, in the same order that the issues were released. Uh, from the way that we tend to wrap these up, thinking of the cover art, weird cover art, honestly, this time around. They are all uh, cover art examples that... Uh, it's Colin Wilson doing the art, uh, not one of my favorite Star Wars artists. Colin Wilson doing the art, the same guy who did Invasion, and each of them has dialogue. It's not just something like the previous art with, in the sights of an assassin droid, scoring fast cash on the battlefront, a nightmare come true, Armageddon. No. This time it's actual dialogue. The first one is from Rana Tay's point of view, as the Padawans come at her in the vision, I warn you, says Zane, now the dead demand revenge. And then we've got issue 17, you got Kareth and Karth, whose names are really too, far too similar, uh, talking about leaving the ship, leaving the Courageous as it's being destroyed. Zane is shown there in a, basically a cell bars reaching out. We have to get off the ship, but what about the Jedi, Karth asks. He has to pay for what he's done. Leave him, Kareth responds. And then finally, 18 gives us a Jeriel as a prisoner with her arms shackled behind her back. Not even remotely like we ever see her in the arc. Presumably this is just symbolic. With yeah. Roland and Arco Adaska talking, and Roland says, This isn't a negotiation. Release the girl now. Never, Adaska says. She's my prisoner until she rots. Which, again, is... It may be something that is sort of the, uh, the subtext of the issue, but it is certainly not a scene we actually get in the issue itself. What's funny is that's actually the first single issue that I bought of this series... And I still bought the next trade after volume four. I go to singles from there on out. But yeah, I remember, and I think it was on John's faraway press where he talked about the fact that they went to that, uh, the speech bubbles on the covers and going back to a certain style. I don't know if it was Marvel comics or, or something like that, but that was a throwback style that they intentionally went to. Uh, and I, I'm not a fan of that so much, but it, it, didn't it wasn't like a, a terrible turnoff uh the cover that i really enjoy the most is the one where it's got mandalore in the background with zane on his knees with his hand across his chest as all the flames of circo are, are, are burning up in the background that's one of my favorites as well as the one that they used for the actual trade cover itself with all the lightsabers lit up those two are, are by far and away my favorite of all these covers Well, that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you once again for hanging out. Thank you once again for hanging out with us as we ponder on sharing the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on iTunes and Stitcher, and we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both Twitter and our Facebook page, at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us, our home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any other Star Wars and or EU questions, or you have something to say for our 100th episode coming up, be sure to fire off an email. You can email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. 
Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the expanding universe or any other genre without being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. And of course, you can also like the Facebook page for the Star Wars Timeline Gold at facebook.com slash SWTimelineGold. You can check out the Amazon.com shop that my wife and I run. It is at Amazon.com slash shops slash Lil Joe Collectibles. That's L-I-L-J-O Collectibles, all as one word. And if you're interested in helping out with the crazy, nuts, insane, completely over-the-top medical bill situation that we're dealing with right now, uh, that I post updates about on the Facebook page for this show and for the Timeline Gold, you can donate via Nathan at StarWarsFanWars.com through PayPal. At this point, the community has raised quite a bit to try to help us about 10 a little more than 10% of what's needed for this massive medical bill that we're dealing with because of an ER visit where my wife had no insurance. Uh, the good news is she will have insurance, thank goodness, by January 1st when the next big stuff starts to come around. So if you want to help out, go right ahead. Uh, you can do so through PayPal. And for those who have already helped, thank you so much. You guys are lifesavers. Um, I think we're going to be able to figure out some kind of way to deal with this situation uh, in a big way thanks to not just the people donating money, but also just the number of well wishes that we've gotten to keep our spirits up as we try to approach this problem as one that can be solved instead of one that is simply out of our league. So thank you very much to everybody. And speaking of help, you can even help support us, our show, as well as the other Star Wars Report website shows and podcast shows by going to www.starwarsreport.com support. Now here in a minute, January is coming and we may need to buy a digital audio recorder. So, you know, that may be something if you want to help us out with that, go to the link, check it out. You can find the links at the bottom of each Star Wars Report episode post. So once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that they will continue treating Jerio as a character, not a sex object. Or that Mark will have Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void finished by next week. Now here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have perplexed you and bothered you, and I'm not saying this right at all. Dun dun dun.